Grab your Bibles, if you would, and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 15. It's going to take me a little while to get there today, but that will be our central text in just a little bit. Um, At the start of 2018, we began a series here at Grace, and we've done about five-ish messages or talks in this series on the subject of barrenness and breakthrough. All of us live through seasons of life that are painful and desolate and really sometimes can best be described as as barren. And, And yet we need to know and never forget that the God of Scripture is a God of breakthrough. And the God of our personal stories is a God of breakthrough. And so we've taken that idea of breakthrough and we've set it as kind of a banner or a theme over 2018 for Grace Church. But today I'm going to shift us into a slightly different direction. I'm going to change our emphasis for a few weeks here leading up to uh, Palm Sunday and Holy Week. Uh, there, There are two major categories of preaching. If you go to Bible college, you'll sometimes learn that preaching can be lumped into two major categories. There's comedic preaching and there is tragic preaching. And comedic and tragic has nothing to do with humor or seriousness. It refers to the style of communication and the the desired outcome from the communication. Most preaching is comedic preaching. Most of my preaching is comedic preaching. Comedic preaching follows the basic trajectory or philosophy of a sitcom. Think about your favorite situational comedy, whether you're an old Seinfeld fan or Frasier was the one that I grew up on, which, man, that sounds old now, but, but whatever the sitcom is that you like, think about your favorite sitcoms. In a sitcom, the characters are confronted with something in almost every episode that disrupts their equilibrium, knocks them off balance, messes up their life, and then through a series of usually humorous events, when it's all said and done, the equilibrium is restored, there's closure, and largely the presuppositions of the characters remain intact. And most preaching is comedic, and that's good, because the gospel, the the hope, and the message of Jesus, it does mess up our equilibrium, but it also restores it, and it anchors us, and it, 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 it holds us in place. And so it's good that a lot of our preaching is comedic, but there's very much a place at times for tragic preaching. Now, a tragedy is similar to comedic or comedies in the sense that the characters encounter something that disrupts the equilibrium and it messes them up. But unlike a comedy where everything is just neatly buttoned up, in a tragedy, the characters are left hanging and the characters aren't seen living happily ever after. And maybe they do go on to live happily ever after. It's just that we the viewer don't get to see them living happily ever after. We have to wrestle with what's been presented. And this morning, I want to bring kind of a a tragic sermon. I want to share a couple of things that will, I think, disrupt our equilibrium. And then I'm going to dismiss you. And I'm going to go home and watch the Olympics. (laughs) Or actually, not yet. I'm going to go to Rooted, and then I'm going to Third Sunday, and then I'll go home and watch the Olympics tonight. But Um, I want us to start a few-week series here on the subject, Turn the Tide, the New Benedictines. Turn the Tide, the New Benedictines. Isn't it funny how we humans, we we always like to roll out a new version of something. Have you noticed that? 
You know, have you heard somebody say that 40 is the new 30? That was undoubtedly a 40-year-old that came up with that. <laughs> they were probably frustrated with their 30s. And so they said 40 is the new 30. And they'll be the ones saying that 50 is the new 40 when they hit 50. But um, maybe you've heard people say that pink is the new black. Well, in the world of fashion and design, black is always the go-to color for elegance and class. And so when pink has a moment of coolness and popularity, people start saying pink is the new black. Uh, in theological circles, people today are talking about the new charismatics. There's a movement right now called Neo or New Reformed Theology. And Reformed Theology is a, a way of reading and interpreting Scripture. Well, I'd like us to talk about the New Benedictines. I don't know how familiar we are here with Benedictine monasticism or Benedictine spirituality. St. Benedict founded an order of monasticism in the 600s. I want to give you a super quick church history lesson so that I can put St. Benedict in a particular context so that we can extrapolate some things from his life that will hopefully help us turn the tide in our personal lives and maybe even in the world around us a little bit. So on the day of Pentecost in 30 AD, when Jesus officially launched the church, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, Christianity blew up. It was crazy what happened. It never should have happened. Christianity grew in unbelievable ways. Christianity was considered a subsect of Judaism, a tiny little religion inside the pluralistic superpower of the Roman Empire. Christianity was oppressed. At times it was persecuted. In fact, a church leader in the second century named Tertullian famously said at one point, go ahead and let them kill us. The blood of martyrs is seed. And that seemed to be the case. Every time Christians were persecuted, the church grew even more. It's kind of like what's happening today in China. I've told you this several times, so this is just a, a refresher. Um, it's crazy what's going on in China today. About 40, 50 years ago, Christianity was outlawed in China. The leader of China at that time, Chairman Mao, made a public proclamation that Chinese lips would never again mention the name of Jesus Christ. When that happened 40 years ago, there was fewer than one million Christians in China. Do you know that today, just a few decades later, there are more Christians in China than there are Christians in America? And China is on track now, in, an, in another few decades, to have more Christians in China than there are people in America. It's crazy. Well, Christianity should not have blown up like this. It, it, it was unbelievable. Um, it continued to grow until the Roman emperor himself in the early 300s, Emperor Constantine, um, embraced and endorsed Christianity. Now, now, this is crazy. Christianity, after Constantine, became the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. Now, remember your Bibles with me. Who killed Jesus? The Roman Empire, under Pontius Pilate, executed Jesus on the cross. And now Christianity is the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. Absolutely crazy. Well, shortly after Constantine, there was a church leader that came on the scene named St. Augustine. And the influence of St. Augustine can, can really, it's hard to overstate his influence. In fact, a lot of how we understand church and Christianity today comes directly from Augustine's 
writings and teachings. Well, in 410 AD, when the Huns attacked Rome, um, Jessica has a, my wife calls everybody Hun. So her, she had a little posse of best friends in Colorado Springs and we called them the Huns because they were all, everybody became Hun when you got around Jessica. Well, <clears throat> do you remember Attila the Hun? Remember that group? When, when the Huns invaded Rome in 410, St. Augustine wrote a book in response to the invasion. The book was called The City of God. It's a tome. It's a massive book. And he was writing to explain how and why an empire like Rome could possibly fall. And in this book, he painted an incredible vision of the reality of God. He called it the city of God that could actually um, surface and grow in the middle of the kingdoms of this world. Well, after Rome fell and the empire disbanded, Christianity began to, to crumble. Christianity began to be torn apart by um, wars from the outside. They were having huge political struggles on the inside of the church. There were bitter theological debates. Corruption started creeping into the church. And at that time, people started looking backwards to Augustine and viewing his era as kind of a golden era in the church. And people started lamenting and wondering, could the church ever produce another St. Augustine? Could the church ever produce another city of God? And it was that context that became the soil um, for the spread and the growth of monasticism. Now, monks and monasteries had already been around for a while. They started popping up in the 300s and the 400s. But it wasn't until this time of corruption that the rise of monasticism began in earnest. Because people who were really devout and they wanted to serve Jesus and make a difference, they saw the corruption in the world and the corruption in the church, and they started to withdraw from society and, and cloister together and figure out how do we try and live holy in this day and age? Well, one of the most influential people of that time was a fellow named Saint, and it wasn't Saint at that point, Benedict of Nursia. Are you okay with the history lesson? Are you with me? Okay. So Benedict was intense. He was educated in Rome, but he decided he needed to withdraw from society and, and, and really learn to live holy. So he lived in a cave by himself as a hermit. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but he so wanted to be pure and holy. Whenever a temptation would come upon him, he would walk outside and look for a thistle patch or a bramble bush. And he would throw himself into this pile of thistles so the pain of the needles would get his mind off the temptation and then he wouldn't sin. So we're, we're going to start a new ministry at Grace. Um, <laughs> that's intense. Well, <clears throat> Benedict rightly realized you can't withdraw from society forever if you want to ever influence society. And so he, he moved back into community and he realized this monastic movement needed some order. It needed some structure. And so he founded a number of monasteries, commissioned a bunch of monks, and he started teaching them how to live holy. And what Benedict did was he tried to take deep spiritual truths and practices and turn them into everyday language that ordinary Christians like us could follow. He wrote about morality and moderation and discipline, and he, he was very detailed in how he prescribed um, order and and, and how to live a holy life. Um, his teachings became known as the rule of St. Benedict. And listen, his life straddled the 5th and 6th century, but people even today still feel his influence. Millions of people 
would say that their spirituality has a health and a robustness directly as a result of what Benedict taught and prescribed. Now, if you are unfamiliar with all of that, if you've never heard of Benedict of Nursia and you never, never thought about all of that, you have most likely heard about the five famous vows of Benedictine spirituality. You've heard about the five vows of Benedictine monasticism. What are those vows? Vows of poverty, sounding familiar? Vows of chastity, vows of obedience, vows of stability. And then the fifth vow that he implemented was called the conversion of manners. I want us to spend a few weeks thinking about the life, or not the life, but thinking about these vows of uh, St. Benedict. I'm not trying to turn grace into a monastery. I actually hate the idea of a monastic withdrawal from society. The church is not supposed to be a little cloistered subculture where we only listen to Christian music and we only watch Christian TV shows and we only wear Christian t-shirts and we only know how to relate to Christians. That's not what we're called to. We're called to move more deeply into society, to bring the power and the life and the influence of God into all of the world around us. But we will never be able to turn the tide if we have even the slightest inkling or desire to shift the cultural tide in our world toward goodness. We will never be able to do that unless we are a vowed people. You, you, you never turn a tide by just drifting with the tide. Tide changers, tide shifters have some vows. They have some non-negotiables that they've anchored themselves to. And it doesn't matter what you're trying to influence or change. And so the vows vary from, from movement to movement. But um, I think there's some, some th truth inside these vows that will help us live a more fully Christ-oriented life. And they'll also help us shift the tide around us <clears throat> in our world. So I, I want us to, to comment just for a, a little bit this morning on the vow of chastity. Uh, before I get into that, though, uh, quick question. Are you a rule follower? Do you have any rule followers here? Um, I read the, the rule of St. Benedict over the summer, and he was a rule guy for sure. He was very um, rule-oriented. How about when you play board games? When you play board games, do you start with the rules, baby? And you read that whole thing, and, and you've got to understand all the nuance. And as soon as they break the rule, you're pulling that out and showing them. Um, I know who some of you, some of you are. But, um, um, or how about with your time? Are you an on-the-dot person or an ish person? I will see you at 8.55 on the dot, or, or I'll, I'll see you around 9 o'clock-ish. Um, uh, have you noticed in life that when trust and relationship increase, rules decrease? And have you noticed that when trust and relationship decrease, rules begin to increase? When a relationship is high in trust and high in strength, you don't need a whole lot of rules, but, but when trust is damaged or when a relationship gets a little bit wobbly, the rules start increasing. Have you ever parented? If you've had a child who was responsible and obedient and they communicated well, you don't need a lot of rules. What time am I going to pick you up, honey? That's about all you need to know. But if you've had a child who has has struggled with responsibility or struggled with honesty or obedience, the rules increase. Okay, now hold on a second. Where are you going? Oh yeah, and who's gonna be there? And that's the only place you're going, right? 
oh yeah, and did you follow up with what I asked you to do before I let you go? As relationship and trust decreases, rules increase. Um, you know, the same is true in our relationship with God. In the book of Genesis, when God had the world, whew, exactly, that's Megan Brooks' fault right there, so. <clears throat> How long do they go at Purpose Church? Maybe they have really long services there. <laughs> um, when God had the world exactly the way he wanted it in the book of Genesis, how many rules were there? One. When God looked at creation and he said the world was good and very good, there was only one rule. In fact, I'll read it to you in, in Genesis 2.16. It says, the Lord God commanded, so he's going to set a rule in place. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. That was the only rule. Hey, kids, this whole world is yours. Enjoy. It's all yours. I just want this one space right here. I just want to give you this one opportunity to lovingly obey me, to lovingly come under my authority and my influence. Just follow this one rule. By the way, even when things are perfect, there still needs to be some rules. Even when the world was perfect, there was still um, a, a rule. Um, even if you totally trust your child, you still need to have some rules. Now, maybe not a lot of rules, but some rules, appropriate rules, actually give us freedom. Appropriate rules show us the lane that we can run in, um, and they're good for us. Uh, they, they give us a chance to exercise fidelity and responsibility and to exercise acts of love and service. Uh, when a person's heart is right, they readily embrace those kinds of rules. Now, if we fail to embrace that kind of rule and authority, that leads to something else. That leads to something called anarchy. Anarchy is the state of chaos and confusion that results from the non-recognition of rules. But God is not a huge rule person. Now, everybody thinks he is because the Bible is filled with rules, but he's not. When he had the world exactly the way he wanted it, I'm going to talk really fast for a while. Can you just stay with me, okay? Um, when he had the world exactly the way he wanted it, there was one rule. If God wanted to, he could have given Adam and Eve the Ten Commandments, but he didn't. He gave them one rule. See, God's heart was, Adam and Eve, you're in relationship with me. In fact, when you read the text, it sounds like they had a standing appointment every evening to walk through the garden in the cool of the day with God. And God's posture was, if you stay in relationship with me, you will naturally do all of the things that I would prescribe for you to do. So God only gave them one rule. He gave Moses the Ten Commandments because Adam and Eve didn't choose to abide by the one rule. They chose anarchy, didn't they? And now we, their descendants, have this dual nature inside us. Part of us longs for order and security and obedience, and another part pushes back and says, don't you dare tell me how to live my life. And we live with that tension inside us. So he gives Adam and Eve one rule, but when they choose anarchy, he gives Moses 10 rules. By the way, do you remember when Moses was on the mountaintop receiving the Ten Commandments? What were the people doing? They were down at the base of the mountain having an orgy, worshiping the golden calves, turning their back on God. And so God eventually gives Moses the entire Old Testament law. Anybody know how many rules there were in the law? I think about 611. 
Lots of rules. Anybody know how many rules there were by the time Jesus came on the scene? I don't know either. <laughs> but, but there was a lot because the religious leaders started creating commentaries of rules on the rules. So they created a whole volume of rules that people had to follow to help them keep the rules. So by the time Jesus came on the scene, the people were being absolutely choked by rules. And he said, this is oppressive. And this is not my design for you, but it's kind of cool when we think through scripture because there have always been a few key leaders who really understood the heart of God. And they realized God is not a rule person. He wants the human heart. And so these leaders tried to shrink things down. If we went to Psalm 24, we would see King David trying to shrink the rules down to just four things. When you get to the prophet Micah, I'll read you Micah's um, verse here. Micah 6, 8. Micah shrinks the whole Old Testament down to just three rules. Remember his rules? Uh, Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Just three rules. And then Jesus loved what David and Micah and others were doing. So listen to this interaction with Jesus in Mark chapter 12. In Mark 12, 28, it says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? And then Jesus answered, The most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right. <laughs> Funny to tell Jesus. You're right, Jesus. You're right in saying that God is one, and there's no other but him. To love him with all your heart, understanding, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. See, God never wanted burnt offerings. He never wanted sacrifices. He never wanted tons of rules. He wanted the human heart. Those things were put in place because humans weren't willing to become living sacrifices, living offerings, living acts of obedience. And so, Jesus takes the whole Bible and he shrinks it down to two commands. And, and then there's the Apostle Paul who always pushed the envelope. And Paul's like, I'm going to one-up Jesus. <laughs> in, in Romans 10, 13, Paul said, love is the fulfillment of the law. Um, is this progression making sense? Okay. Um, then let's look at our Bibles in Acts chapter 15. And I just need a few more minutes for this. In Acts chapter 15, see, this is a tragic sermon. I can just hit you with this and then be done. I don't have to take a long time. But in Acts chapter 15, the leaders of the first century church were having a gigantic discussion about the rules. See, all of these Gentile, non-Jewish people were becoming Christians, and the question came up, what rules are we going to translate over to them? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to live in a, or worship at a certain time? What rules apply to these non-Jewish believers who are now following our Messiah and our Savior? This was huge. This was a massive, massive discussion and debate. And here's how it went down. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch, and they were teaching the believers. 
unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Verse 4, when Paul and Barnabas came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Verse 19, it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them. So here are the rules that James is going to suggest. Telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols. In other words, you belong to God now. So if you are aware that the food that's being served to you has been offered to an idol in a, in a pagan worship service, just politely abstain from that. The food's not going to contaminate you. It's not going to make you sick. It doesn't have any supernatural power, but, but you're God's. So as much as is possible, just, just make that clear. And, verse 20, abstain from sexual immorality. And then let me drop down and just read the letter that they sent to the believers. In verse 23, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things, farewell. One of the vows that these Benedictine monks embraced was the vow of chastity. It's not the same thing as the vow of celibacy. The vow of chastity, purity in one's sexuality. And they said essentially by embracing that vow, we believe that the apostles and the elders were correct. And we believe that we would do well to manage our sexuality in this way. The word well, you will do well, uh, means good. But the word itself in the text is actually an adverb, which means the word well means better. It would be better for you to conduct yourself this way. It would be better for you to wrestle with your sexuality and with your sexual expressions 
and to strive to honor God with your body. It's better to do that than it is to simply live at the mercy of our sexual appetites or urges in a given moment. Now, here's the tragic element of the sermon. The apostles and the elders didn't send a book to the Gentiles with 100 ways of doing this. They didn't write a book with 100 philosophical reasons why it would be better for you to do this. Now, they could have done that, and those books are out there. But when this truth came down to the church, you know what they said? They simply said, hey, listen, you belong to God. You're his, and he created you, and he knows you inside out, and he loved you enough to give his life for you. God loves you more than created galaxies of worlds. And this God wants the best for you more than anyone else on the planet. And he believes that it would be better for you to swim upstream in this area. Even though sexuality and sexual expression and sexual freedom is almost like the oxygen that we breathe today. This is such a big issue in our world. And to try and tell people to turn the tide and live counterculturally in this area is a big, big request. Um, Stephen, I'm ready for you to, to rejoin me. But, but listen, in closing this morning, if you're single today, whether you're a single college-age student or a single senior citizen, if you're single today, would you think about this? Would you pray about this? And would you wrestle with this? You know, there are times in our singleness when we are loving it. There are some perks to singleness that, that coupled up people don't have. There's freedoms and benefits, and sometimes there's a lot of grace in our singleness. Sometimes this just really isn't the big issue. We have grace, and we're doing fine. But, but there are other times when to ask a single person to embrace a vow of chastity is one of the most difficult things in the world that a person can do. So if you're single... Would you find a mentor or someone that you can talk to and pray with and just wrestle this through? The, the scripture says it's better. And so if it's better, it's certainly worth wrestling this through. There's a scripture that says, it's a, back in the um, book of Numbers, let God be true uh, and every man a liar, which doesn't mean every man is a liar, but it means even if every person on the planet said one thing, if that was different from what God said, all of that, uh, affirmation doesn't, doesn't mean that they're right and God's wrong. So would you wrestle that through? If you're dating but you're not married, would you talk about this? And would you ask and wrestle with that idea of why would God say that sex is supposed to be uh, limited to a covenant context? You know, a covenant is a blood oath vow. It means I will die before I break my promise to you. Why would God say sex should be relegated to that context? What does that say about sex? What does that say about God? So if you're dating, but you're not married, would you talk about this? If it's better for you, here, listen, here's the thing. If it's better for you, it's better. If God's way is better, God's way will be better, even if it's difficult. If you're married... And so you have a context for having sex. Don't defile it. Don't bring any other people into it. 
through an actual person or through a virtual person online or in some other format. Don't corrupt it. The Bible tells us that the marriage bed is supposed to be kept pure. If you're married and if your sex life has been damaged, if there's hurt or trauma or a loss of affection or medical issues, and that's hurt your sex life, would you please get help? It's supposed to be a gift to you. It's supposed to be a blessing. I I know it would be very painful to bring up issues of that nature in a marriage relationship, but it's better to pursue God's way. And then it it does say in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, to married couples in the context of sexuality, don't deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And if you would say, well, that doesn't apply to me because boy, I tell you what, he or she, after they have done or become X, Y, and Z, why would I ever want to give myself to them? And you know what? That's probably a very fair question. So what that means is you need to address the X, Y, and Z. Because if those things stay unaddressed for too long, things fall apart and things won't be held together in the long run. You know, it's never easy to swim upstream, is it? Um, It's never easy to say, I'm going to pay a price to turn the tide. But we've been called to this. This isn't a prudish teaching of the church. Uh, let me read you another verse in closing in 1 Corinthians 4.3. It says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. That means set apart. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that In this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. If you weren't here last Sunday... I want to just reference um, my message last time and give you a couple of resources because in comedic preaching, there would be rationale and pointers and pep talks and a plan. In tragic preaching, we're just presented with, this is what it says and now we need to wrestle. But since this is a little more tragic this morning, I just want to mention, because next Sunday we're shifting gears. I won't talk about sex next Sunday. Um, But last Sunday... I shared a message that was a little more comedic on this area. It gave a few more practical, philosophical, apologetic ideas. So if you weren't here last Sunday, that would be a great companion talk to this. Also, a few years ago, um, I think Isaiah helped me with it. We did a series here at Grace on the subject of sexuality. and, And we took our time explaining why God would say this is better, even if it's difficult. And then also, um, I read a book over the summer by Pastor Andy Stanley called The New Rules for Love, Sex, and Dating. It is so good. 
some of the best teaching I've ever heard on this subject of why God would say this is better. In fact, it might be a good summer reading book for us because it's not just for young people, it's for humans and it's fantastic. But, but if you would be willing to wrestle with this, because this is tough. I don't even know how, I don't know how to do this in this culture. This is a big ask. But if we're willing to say, I'm going to be a new Benedictine and I'm going to take the essence of those vows and internalize them because I want the cultural tide to shift, at least when it gets to me. I'm not going to be a, you know, a cheese grater that's filled with holes. You can't dam a, a tide like that if you're filled with holes. The water goes right through you. But if we're solid and strong and have some character, at least around me, the tide's going to have to shift a little bit. If you have even an inkling of a desire to be that kind of a Christian, uh, pick up that book, The New Rules for Love, Sex, and Dating by Pastor Andy Stanley. And then let's wrestle together. And let's live up to our name of grace, where we're patient and we're understanding and we're not, we're not prudish and we're not judgmental, but we're leaning into and passionately pursuing the person of Jesus Christ.